You're listening to episode 220 of Positively Trek. My name is Barry DeFord, and I'm happy to be joining you all on this wonderful episode I've actually been looking forward to for a very long time. And with me, as always, is Mr. Dan Gunther. How you doing, Dan? Very, very well. I've been really looking forward to this, too, ever since you, you first proposed it. So I think we're in for a special one this week. Yeah, so you, uh, if you follow, um, well, if you know who I am on uh, on Twitter, I guess, I, I am kind of quiet about that, but uh, if we've crossed paths on some social medias, Facebook and, and whatnot, you may notice I follow a wonderful uh, person named Bryson, who is Mi'kmaq, he's a, uh, a, a ship's navigator, he's... Um, uh, an educator, he's active in his community, and I'm really honored to call him uh, my friend. And uh, we're we're having him back on. If you've listened to Polytrex before, he was actually on the last episode I ever recorded with that. Um, more to say there later in the news segments. But um, yeah, we welcome to the show, Mr. Bryson. How are you doing today, Bryson? I am doing very well. I'm excited to do this. Uh, yeah, it's gonna be fun. Yeah. So last time we last time we met, we were talking about indigenous uh, representation in Star Trek, and um, how do you feel about that? Just really quick off the top, like, have you noticed any change since we spoke, or is... uh, none at all? <laughs> yeah, like it's, you know, they've gone in good other directions, but yeah. yeah, yeah. I I kind of like sometimes I'll I'll do like the shade to like Star Trek and be like, you know, it's been four thousand or forty thousand some odd days since uh, no representation for indigenous people on track and like yeah i just do stuff like that maybe somebody will see it <laughs> we can hope i mean i think that is one thing about about star trek is that if they're if they're going to be putting their their all their chips down on progressiveness and diversity you know they've done good jobs in other places and i commend them on that but this is the next step and addressing you know the colonial aspects as well of the federation exactly yeah <laughs> so yeah well it's it's wonderful to have you back um i would say what's new but i think that's kind of what we're going to be talking about today so um, perhaps we could uh, move directly into the news there, Dan, unless there's anything else you wanted to weigh in on there. No, absolutely. I, th- I think uh, there's there's lots of good fodder for some great discussion later because uh, I'm excited to uh, pick your brain, Bryson, about some stuff. And, and I've, I'm really excited to learn a lot more. So uh, this is going to be a lot of fun. But uh, yeah, yeah, let's talk about the week's Star Trek news, which, you know, there isn't much, but there's a couple little news stories I highlighted here. The first one is uh, Star Trek Prodigy is nominated for Best Animated Children's Series, and that's in the Emmys. So uh, Prodigy is potentially now a greater than zero chance of winning an Emmy, which I think is, I think it's well-deserved. This has been a fun show. I've enjoyed the episodes I've watched so far. It's whimsical. It's a good little 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 piece of piece of work there yeah last time we spoke you were talking about kind of catching up on on them and stuff i'm curious where you're at in that uh in that watch the very first episode i I got about uh (laughs) i got about 35 minutes through and then we ended up getting a new cat Ah, so that's that's taken uh that's taken precedent over uh keeping up with prodigy at this point but uh, that's understandable time (laughs) yeah yeah brayson have you watched any prodigy uh yes right up until the last episode on thursday yeah. All right, so this is this is this is maybe a conversation between you and Dan, maybe a little more than. What do you guys think? How, how do you feel about this nomination? Uh, it's well deserved, I think, because like it's just such a great show. Like it's, I don't know, it's just it feels fresh. Mm-hmm. So fresh is in like it's kind of like it's got like uh, like stories that we may not have necessarily you know kind of looked at, or is it kind of more in its characterization? Yeah, like in its characterization, like it has a different take. Um, you know, like it is geared towards a younger crowd, but it doesn't shy away from heavy topics as well, you know? So like it kind of brings them to a level that younger people can understand. Yeah. And I think it does a really good job of carrying on that Star Trek tradition of good messages. You know, I I kind of credit watching TNG as a kid for some of at, at least a good chunk of my morality and how I view the world and that sort of thing. And this show, I feel like it distills those down a little bit for a younger audience, but with still that same message with that same heart to it. Like uh, Bryce, in this most recent episode, you mentioned let sleeping Borg lie. Yeah. 
And uh, that one I felt had just a really strong message at the end about, yeah, you know, family and inclusiveness and um, belonging to a, a, a collective, I guess, yeah. in a roundabout way. I, I really like that. Yeah, and it also like dealt with PTSD and and stuff like that. So like you know, it was a it was a great episode. I think like it it and it was very nostalgic because you know like it's the Borg. You know, yeah. everybody loves them and hates them at the same time. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. But yeah, so I agree. Very well deserved nomination yeah. here. Uh, when I first saw this news story pop up, I was like, oh, a, a Star Trek Emmy nomination. So it'll be some technical thing or, oh, best children's animated series or or, or whatever. Right. Uh, yeah. Best animated children's series. That's great. I would love yeah. to see them win for like a creative uh, award like that and especially a show in their first season yeah you know, like no kidding yeah it's uh it's something that i i do feel a mild amount of embarrassment for not having kept up but the way the two of you have both spoken about this obviously uh i am going to see if i can get some more uh familial watching with this because i do think that this is a it's a pretty accessible too would you guys say yeah very much so, yeah. That's awesome. The last few episodes, I've actually, when I watch them a second time, I've kind of tried to put myself in the mind of someone who's maybe a little younger, but also has never really watched Star Trek before. And so, for example, this most recent episode, being introduced to the Borg for the first time, I feel like the episode does a really great job of taking a lot of those Star Trek elements and saying, okay, this is what this is. Here's kind of the quick... Uh, 10 minute lesson and let's get into the story now and yeah i love it yeah and and also they don't like dwell on the deep cuts like you need to know this exact little like you know moment from this episode of whatever right Mm -hmm. so like it it kind of just has that like that deep cut but it doesn't dwell on it yeah it's definitely there for the longtime fans like there's enough stuff there uh for the the seasoned fans among us let's say to uh to pick up on and really appreciate but it it remains very accessible to the new viewer for sure so yeah the the children's and family emmy awards they'll be presented on saturday december 10th we'll look forward to that and report here i guess if uh prodigy can rack up a win for its first season it sounds pretty deserved i think so for sure yeah i think so too well the other story i think is it's it's a it's a trip into the uncanny valley and i'll tell you about it in a second uh, and it's also something that now i'm looking at it there is a very very high possibility that if my local comic book store uh brings a few in i would potentially or even order one because they're actually kind of cool these uh these star trek super seven uh star trek from the next generation ultimate action figures with some real deep speaking of deep cuts like you can uh like Riker, for instance i was looking at his specifically and you can change the type of hands he has it comes with a trombone it comes with a very bizarre tiny picard plushie um (laughs) and you can and the best part that i like about it is depending on what you're what he's doing you can change his face and there's actually a few different face facial features you can get for the different characters my favorite also is data's that doesn't change at all just there's some things coming out of one of his and i think the other one he's wearing his visor or something like that is uh his poker visor they're very like articulate and they're quite um quite detailed so yeah you can change their face they all come with like very little crazy like specific um trinkets that come with them and and like companions like data comes with spot um it's all very it, it's strange, but I like it. Yeah, these are, are definitely something that caught my eye. Super 7 put out another line of TNG figures that were like kind of, I, I, I didn't really get into them or look into them, but they were a lot less detailed and a little bit more kind of, yeah, not, not quite this accurate, I guess. Um, so when I saw these come up, I was kind of thinking like, ah, oh, kind of more of the same. And then I clicked into them and, and I'm pretty impressed with, with some of these things. And uh the, this first wave, I guess, this first offering, we have Riker, like you said, in Data, and also Guinan and Locutus, which is pretty cool. I think for myself, if I were 
going to pick any of these up and I'm, I'm kind of maybe going to do that. I think I would want to get Gain and, and Locutus because I know me. And if I get Riker and Data, I would have to get the rest of the crew as they come out. And I don't know if I want to make that commitment. So, but yeah, these are pretty impressive. Guinan, you can even do like her crazy cat hands when she's confronting Q. Like, I love yeah. this. <laughs> yeah. Does the uh, Riker one come with a little chair? and what about angel one chest hair oh that that needs to be like a variant figure that they put out right (laughs) i love it oh he he does have one where it's like this like wry smile he's got on his face so yeah if if you had the one where he's like wearing that like skimpy little that little toga that iridescent toga house coat that he's got with his chest hair and that wry smile my goodness i'm good at sewing so <laughs> oh there you go yeah <laughs> i can modify that's awesome they would have to put oh. out a, a beardless one though too i think yeah. for that one which yeah uh, i don't know <laughs> Riker without a beard just is wrong somehow yeah 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 it's he's got a thin face without the beard i like i like the beard better gives him that commanding look i i I don't know 55 bucks american i could i could justify one after some saving for sure yeah Mm. yeah definitely they're kind of a nice medium between you know like the playmates ones that are coming out which are are nice for their price they're kind of in the 17 us dollar range somewhere in there and then you've got like the 200 dollar xo6 figures that you know oof, yeah that's a lot of money 55 bucks is still quite a bit too though <laughs> yeah okay so here's the question then would the two of you take the action figures out of the packaging and actually like, you know, manipulate them, put them up and stuff myself, I would 100% do that. And then like stand it up kind of near where my desk is or something like that. I would definitely take it out. What about you two? Yeah, I definitely take it out. Yeah. Yeah. I would with these ones as well too. I think uh, they just have so much playability with the different heads and stuff, you know? It's so weird. I wonder what hand I, I, you can almost see what hand he has in poker too. I should have had a. I should have had a better look. Oh, it looks like a straight flush. Uh, a straight flush. Of course, it's it's a straight flush. Oh, actually. Oh, and Data's got a hand in poker too. Actually, would it be a royal flush? Actually, why not? Oh goodness. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn five dollars into one hundred and fifty dollars instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code Champion One Fifty. Then place a five dollar wager on any sport. You'll receive one hundred and fifty dollars in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the King of Sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc what's so special about hero bread soft fluffy and delicious breads buns and tortillas these ultra low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar fewer calories and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health shop now at hero.co This episode of Positively Trek would not be possible without the support of those of you who have gone to patreon.com slash positively trek and signed up to become a Patreon supporter of the show. Thank you all so very much for your donations. They truly do help bring this show to you each week. Thank you especially to our Constitution class supporters, Joyce Marin, Justin Ozer, Jim Stoffel, Jesse Earle, Dave Garcia, Rick Young, and Paul D. Kinnear. If you'd like to become a supporter of the show, go to patreon.com slash positivelytrek. You can get perks such as early access to episodes, ad-free versions of episodes, exclusive content, shoutouts, associate producer credits, and much more. Once again, that's patreon.com slash positivelytrek. Thank you all once again. And now, let's get back to the show. I do have to say that um, getting to sort of 
experience Star Trek's many different facets has always been something I've enjoyed. And and collecting is one thing, making, you know, going to conventions we've talked about as well. But uh, Bryson's done something I think is not only authentic, but also kind of organic. And it sort of has really given me a real feeling of, uh, of Gene Roddenberry's vision, as would be said, of like, it's Star Trek is kind of like, you know, being in the military or being out exploring or being, you know, kind of in some kind of organized Starfleet-y kind of thing. But like, obviously, it doesn't really exist. And I have a bit of apprehension around, you know, the kind of the military aspect of, of Starfleet. The The exploration aspect, however, is something really cool in the learning part. And so I find, Bryson, you've done this really cool job of uniting things that I've always loved. And that is Star Trek... That is exploration, indigenous culture, and Mister Rogers. And I want to I want to ask you what initially compelled you to start sharing your experience, and what exactly are you taking again? I, I've always I'm always forgetting the name of the course you're taking, and and what's sort of like the end game you have in mind. Um, I'm taking uh, marine navigation technology. Uh, basically, it's just all my all the courses like that Transport Canada offers to eventually get your tickets, like your, your Marine tickets, uh, all in one program instead of doing like most people used to do self-studying, right. And do one course at a time. So like, yeah, there's just a more structured, uh, aspect of it. So like, uh, when I get out, I will be writing my, my ticket to be a third mate. So that means I'm, I'll be the third per oh, fourth person in command. Wow. Very cool. Is that data? That be so fourth person in command, or would that be Doctor Crusher? Yeah, possibly Doctor Crusher. I think Data was second officer, third in command. Yeah, so that yeah, you'd be basically yeah, because I think Doctor Crusher, because she's a commander, would take the next, would take the helm next, maybe. Anyways, this is this is the connection, Bryson. This is what I've been doing every time. Every time you show, you know, some schematic that you're working on, or like the outline drawing of a, like a bulkhead, or you've got like just a ton of math. All I do is think of like, okay, so there he is math. in stellar. <laughs> oh, you're and and math. My goodness, what um, how, uh, scale of one to ten? How hard is this math? Would you say for yourself? Is 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 math easy for you, or is this something that uh, you've kind of had a natural? It kind of is easy for me, but um, like this math I'm doing is, you know, it's three dimensional, you know, like it's astro navigation at, at its best, you know, like one calculation takes 45 minutes to do, you know, and uh, you're, you're using trigonometry, you're using, well, not only trigonometry, but spherical trigonometry. And it's hard to get your mind wrapped around that because you're not you're traveling in a straight line, but you're not, you're actually traveling over the earth, you know? So like, it's so many variables. Yeah. And, you know, like math is, I'm good at math, but like, you know, like one plus one equals two is my five favorite kind of math. Not, not this stuff I'm doing. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot. And like right now too, like we're doing, I'm, I'm doing a cargo course right now. So we're learning about, I don't know, loading stuff and like how like stability. So you have to worry about like calculations with that, like, you know, like your center of gravities and, and stuff like that. So you don't tip over the ship. So not only are you the crew of, of the starship, you're also kind of the computer. Yeah. <laughs> So I've I've got to ask, like in the middle of of doing this kind of stuff, these these crazy variables and calculations, do you ever kind of put yourself in the mind of being on a starship? Like I'm a total nerd, so when I sit down to like a a meeting in a in a meeting room, I'm like, oh, it's the briefing room. There's the window there, and the stars are out there. Yeah. And I just kind of play that in my head. Does that ever happen to you? Oh yeah, all the time. Because like especially because like, I'm a navigator at heart, right? So like I would be that's what i would be doing on a starship you know i'd probably be a navigator so yeah. cool <laughs> yeah <laughs> Just, like you it is kind of like you know in in our sort of imaginary trek world you are the closest analog we have yeah. mm -hmm. like to, to starfleet in the sense that you do all these like 
complicated things and and it is very much based on you know if you were traveling through space i mean even our understanding of spaces is actually warped right it like space is kind of like the size like the shape of a saddle or something they say the universe is kind of um and and here you are you know that is right where you know you understand why the mercator's map kind of inflates the the size of everything at its poles it's so that you can move in a straight line on a map without having to arc it (laughs) so so crazily uh, yeah, it's just there's just so many similarities, but it's like it feels like it's like ancient technology at the same time, you know, compared to like Star Trek technology. Well, exactly. But you you have even more of a connection too, right. You, you've you served on, on a tall ship, too. Yeah. And fun fact about that is I, I worked on the Lady Washington. What? Oh, which wow. is the Enterprise. Yeah. yeah. From it, from generations. Right. That was. The yeah. Ship I that... worked on her. Yeah. That is too cool. Back in, uh, when was that? 2005. Yeah. Oh, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know it was the Lady Washington. What the hell? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Why are you so cool, Bryson? This isn't fair. <laughs> I'm not really cool in real life. No. I I beg to differ, I think. So I what, just do a what lot did of you mundane do? things, little thing. Oh, on, okay, um, yeah, ooh. On yeah. the Lady Washington, what mundane things did you get up to, sir? I want to know every detail now. This is going to be a three-hour episode, by the way. I'm canceling my, my plan. <laughs> well, it, you know, like, I, I worked in California, so I worked on a bunch of different ships there. Uh, and, um, you know, got, got to do, like, a week or two on, on, on these ships. But, I'm like, my main one was in San Pedro. Um, I worked on that, uh, the Irving Johnson. So... But like I got to go on for a week on on the Lady Washington, you know, have fun. We did cannon battles. You know, we did lots of touring of of the ship, you know, like sitting at the dock being like, don't trip over that. (laughs) And then they would trip over that. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, just just stuff like that. Cool. Cool little like, you know, we went down to San Diego and stuff like that. So, yeah. What uh, what sort of duties did you did you have on the tall ships? Where did you find yourself mostly? Um, I was a deckhand, so um, I basically was like the lowest rank. So I did everything, like nice lower deck paint. Yeah, <laughs> basically, yeah, yeah. That's where I spent most of my time in the lower decks. You know, like I on one ship, I slept in a room with eighteen other people. Yeah. So <laughs> it was, yeah. And we ate there, you know, we socialized in that spot. We had bunks that were three feet by three feet by six feet, you know? <laughs> wow. Yeah. I spent most of my life in a bunk that big. <laughs> I, uh, I mean, like my favorite, one of my favorite episodes of Star Trek is master and commander on the far side of the ocean or far side of the world. <laughs> and I mean, like, there are moments and times where like my historical knowledge can, you know, be like, well, this would have been this way and that would have been that way. And, oh, they're doing this for effect or whatever else. But I'm just thinking to myself now that you could totally be looking at the, you know, what they're doing, you know, say they're tying a knot or say they're, they're moving somewhere else and you'd be like, oh, that would kill him. No, that wouldn't happen. His fingers would fly right off. Like, (laughs) do you do that as well? Like when you're, when you're watching stuff like that? Oh yes. I'm like, this is, this is not accurate. There's like, I'm like, this is wrong. They should, one shouldn't be pulling this line. I'm like, oh, look, there's a radar covered by canvas. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's not accurate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I do. Th- I nitpick like sailing movies all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Which one would you say is the one of the more accurate you've watched? White Squall is pretty accurate because they've used um, a tall ship. And um, surprisingly, Pirates of the Caribbean is pretty accurate. Like they have one of like the most accurate like depictions of club hauling in all of movie history, I think. Club hauling is, it's basically you drop your anchor while you're sailing and pivot around it and then break it off and go. Yeah, that's like the coolest scene in in all of Pirates, I think. (laughs) So how do you feel about like when Star Trek kind of brings in a lot of those like nautical terms for like flavor and stuff like... uh, I'm thinking of Star Trek six, right? Where Kirk's like, uh, like right standard rudder, bring us alongside that kind of thing. And 
you know, even Janeway saying like batten down the hatches and does that ring true for you or is that like, oh, they're kind of putting something on here? Yeah, it's a little bit of both, you know, like it's it's kind of like, hey, I know what they're saying <laughs> or like then or like I'll be like, oh, wait, actually, I got to I got to see if they're actually using that correctly and, you know, stuff like that. So, yeah, it's you know, it is kind of sometimes it is it is over the top <laughs> you're like okay you just want you had a writer in that day didn't you <laughs> yeah. or or nick nick meyer was heavily influenced on, on this yeah. one yeah, <laughs> yeah. so c- to kind of pivot into a specific here you did something very very cool uh this earlier this year and i think it's something that uh really kind of tickled the picard uh, vibe uh, a lot in terms of what you were up to and something that I think the actual enterprise would do on a more galactic scale. Um, can you tell us what you, uh, what you got up to this summer? Yeah. Uh, I was, um, I was a deckhand on a ship that went, uh, out to the Titanic. Yeah. And we took tourists down to the Titanic in a submersible. Uh, I didn't go down personally. Uh, I would have loved to, but, uh, yeah, we, we did five trips out there. So a good six weeks, we were out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, you know, at the at the wreck site. And uh, yeah, it was a very moving moment to be in. Did you have much of a fascination with the Titanic beforehand or? Oh, oh, yes. Yeah. Like, it's what got me into into wanting to be a sailor, you know, because like, I was six years old when they found the Titanic. And, you know, I was in that impressionable mindset that, you know, like, this is cool. Like, you know, I want to be an explorer, you know, so and and it was cool, too, because like I keep saying cool. I don't know why, um, <laughs> but it was awesome. Yeah. You know, like it's just it's so mind blowing, you know, like we got uh, I got to meet actual people that were like there when when the Titanic was found, you know, like our our head you know submersible driver was working as a young person on on the natil so it was it's pretty cool and he dove down to the titanic 38 times there's a picture of you know just after they found they're on the on the deck of the um uh, what's the woods hole uh boat anyway i'm back, terrible with boat names um yeah and they're all there and they have the explorer club's flag up right and we actually had that with us. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, yeah, it was very, it, yeah, it just, it was once in a lifetime thing. You know, it, it was my pinnacle, I think. I got to say, man, like, it really <laughs> is pretty darn cool. Like, we're all saying this word over and over again <laughs> because I think we're at a loss. Like, you're right. There's like, there's a ton of intersecting history, right? Yeah. Um, just like starting at the top, right? There is this new trip, which um, I would act- wouldn't mind actually asking after I'm done kind of explaining this out, uh, what exactly the trip might be about. Um, but then, yeah, like here you are meeting people who were either present or had something to do with the initial discovery of the Titanic. Then you're like literally over top of what is, I think, a, you know, one of the most fundamental um, historical events in the Western world, at least. So, you know, there, there's all of that. And and all of that history that's just sort of swirling around, plus, you know, your own personal history, like you said, like, I agree, that is a once in a lifetime event. And uh, I really, really uh, appreciate that you took us all along and, and the pictures you took and um, all the different little things It it, it actually kind of like help my mental health out a little bit, <laughs> just getting to kind of vicariously sort of sit on your shoulder and watch uh, the whole thing unfold. Yeah, you know, like, I, that's why I kind of like tried to like live tweet it as much as possible. Because like, you know, it was just such a phenomenal moment, you know, and humbling at the same time, you know, like to be out there, where 1500 people passed away, you know, to be looking at images of, of shoes on the bottom of the of you know, on the bottom, you know, you know, that's yeah. somebody, you know, so like, yeah, it was, it was, I cried a lot, you know? <laughs> yeah. 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 As I think many of us would, but, but wow, to be there. And, and like you say, especially that personal connection, that's what led you to be in the position to be able to be there was that fascination with that initial that's amazing. What a story. One of the most, um, yeah, one thing that actually kind of 
gave me a moment of pause, and I've gone back to it a few times, is the picture you took while you were anchored, I think, over the Titanic site, and there was like a carrier ship or something out in the distance, and you took a picture, because that would like, relatively speak, be speaking, be pretty close to, I think it would have been the Carpathia that passed by. Oh, no, the, um, that would be the uh, California. The California. Yeah, and, and just the running light, seeing those in the distance, and like, thinking again about those people who were like either waiting in the water and seeing those lights off in the distance. Uh, it was particularly haunting, <laughs> but also, yeah, cool too. At the same time, you know, there was moments like I remember our first night there, like what I think it was just after I took that photo, I was just standing there on the aft deck and looking up at the sky and just a meteorite just went by and it was just bright green. And I literally was the only one that's seen it. And I was like, oh, like, this is why I'm out here. You know, it was like, I, these are the moments, you know, that I, this is what I do. And like, it's, it's the coolest job in the world. <laughs> I agree. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love or my like, job too, but. <laughs> or like, there is a moment where, you know, like I'm touching this submersible for the first time. And I'm like, harking back to like first contact, you know, when, when Picard is touching the Phoenix. I, I love this because of, you know, there's, there's the exploration, there's the, those, those vibes as well, but also like just speaking as someone who was born and raised and currently once again lives in the prairies in Canada. Like this is so far removed from my experience. Like the comedian uh, Ron James might say, you know, have we, we have waves of wheat. That's the closest we have, but they <laughs> yeah. won't pull you down into a prairie undertow because yeah. that's, that's not our experience at all. So I'm, yeah. I'm amazed and, and just in awe. And I, I love this picture you're painting because, yeah. Oh, like, there, there's something I don't know, fundamental or, or something. Uh, the experience you're painting here, like it touches something primal in yeah. human beings. I think being alone out there on on this vast wilderness that's the ocean, right? And yeah, ah, I don't know. I'm I'm getting chills, yeah. and I can't <laughs> I can't articulate it exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, I totally agree. Like it's just it's it's yeah, it's awesome. You know, like. For and for every bad day I have out there, you know, I have thousands of great days. Nobody, but nobody ever wants to hear about the great days. So, like, that's why, like, I felt like I should be tweeting on the great days uh, because you know you need to know like the whole story. So, what what would you say the the big like um, what what kind of stood out to you in terms of the response to all of this? I mean, I'm kind of, I was standing at the sideline. I didn't comment all the time or anything like that. But there were some pretty excited people for what you did there. And yeah, I would. Yeah. So how, what would you say like stood out? Was there anything, any connections that you made through sharing all of that, that you'd, that you'd want to share? I feel like on my, on my Twitter, I've made a really good community, but like what I was doing, like, like tweeting about, about the Titanic and stuff like that really brought in a lot of like people that have similar connections to it, you know, and that I never knew, you know, and I've been following a lot of people for years and like, they were like, Oh, this reminds me of my father. And, you know stuff like that so it was all those good memories you know like that people were sharing that i i was like oh wow you know like i'm helping them to like remember these good times well the vibe i got from you was very mr rogers and i hope you take that as a compliment um he's uh he's someone who really helped me when i was young to get to know the world without always being able to get to those places as dan said we are way the heck and gone from any ocean here, either you're climbing mountains or you're walking forever. And honestly, if I was going to try to get to an ocean from here, I'd probably just, I'd probably go the mountain way because it's, it's prettier, but maybe, maybe North would be faster. I don't know. Just follow the river. Anyways, you know, with, with, with Mr. Rogers, he was always able to kind of in a very calm and friendly way. And you could tell he, he enjoyed what he did, but there was just, um, there was a, a, a manner he had about him that, that, I don't know if it was intentional or not. You sort of took on where sometimes you'd address the people watching, you know, do you know what this is or do you know what this does? Uh, and then other times, you know, you would you would just show a picture of the wake you were cutting, right, with the sound. And it was really, I, I found that like ASMR style, just nice to hear the the sound of the wind and the water and everything else. There was, with, with Mr. Rogers, there was, I guess like the best term I could use is a casual intentionality to the whole thing, is, if that makes any sense. It does. It, it makes so much sense, you know, because like he taught you without teaching you. That's how I I 
takeaway from Mr. Rogers, you know, like he, there was always lessons he was teaching, you know, and like, and that's how I, I feel like, you know, like I, I'm here on this earth to, to teach. And then when I can't, you know, like I'm done, you know, like I've done what I've, I've, I need to do. So like, you know, like I, I enjoy sharing like the little, little details, you know, like, Oh, you know, what's the name of this knot? You know, like people, people actually want to learn stuff like that, you know, or like, you know, what's the function of this random thing on deck? You know, I guess like in my industry, like there's such a like niche of people, like, you know, like it's, there's not that much people that does what I do, you know, especially for you guys, you know, like you don't grow up around the water, you know, like I've been in, around the water since I was born. <laughs> so it's a different breed, I guess. Yeah. Well, it really does kind of do that, that same thing that Star Trek does. And I love how, I love how you've, you've managed to sort of marry all of these things together. But I feel like I've been jabbering too much here, Dan, I'm going to let you weigh in. Your, your job as a navigator. So how much of kind of what you do would look familiar to a Star Trek fan? Like if, if you're on the bridge doing your thing or, or what would that look like to someone who knows nothing about seafaring, but, uh, grew up on star Trek, <clears throat> me, maybe. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, um, the modern ships I work on right now, like they're so computerized. Uh, I can press literally press a button and it will take me straight to it you know, where I need to go. So it's like, it's literally like Chekhov's like course plotted and laid in captain. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. You know, like we don't have big ships wheel. It's like literally a joystick. So it's crazy how like similarities, like I, I don't know if you guys saw like, but I did tweet like a picture of the bridge and it's just so futuristic. It looks like a starship bridge, you know, like it, there's computer screens everywhere. There's touch buttons and like, yeah, it's just, it's, it's amazing. <laughs> and the next time you go, you'll go in your uniform, right? Your Star yeah. uniform? <laughs> yeah. You get a selfie on the bridge. Yeah. Because, like, <laughs> I, ne- I didn't have time to, like, work on actual, like, do any of the navigation this summer because I was literally stuck in a small boat on the middle of the Atlantic for five weeks, you know? <laughs> so I never got a chance to be up on the bridge for more than, like, 10 minutes, you know? Definitely next year. So the other the other question I have is, how is the food? Oh my god! <laughs> well, you know, like when we we had three different clients on this summer. So like you know, we had the Titanic, then we did a, a couple survey uh, survey trips the, on the Titanic. Yeah, we ate a lot of good food. <laughs> yeah, the budget was not spared. You know, uh, and. Normally, like when I work on ships, I lose weight. No, not this year. <laughs> I gained weight. Yeah. <laughs> so that, yeah, the food was great. <laughs> I often think about like when things got good or when things got bad, say like uh, in Star Trek, obviously they've always had the the replicator or just sort of the inexplicable amount of food that would be allowed. But I think about like Enterprise and stuff like that and, ne- you know, and not Neelix, goodness, that's Voyager, but Neelix cooking as well, right? And like stores of food and everything like that. What would you say is like, is there like a ship's food go-to that say us land lovers wouldn't really know about? Or is my grandpa was a merchant marine and he always talked about peanut butter and honey toast. Uh, you know, like... Well, not so much on this ship, but like on tall ships, you know, like we do bare bone trips. So like everything's like calculated right down to the T. So like, you know, on long voyages, you run out of things and you'd be like, ah, I really want that. But literally we're out of the middle Atlantic. We can't go to the grocery store. So like I, you know, like Nutella was a big thing for on one ship I worked on, you know, like people would buy it and like stash it in their bunks. And be like, this is my private stash. And like junk food would be, you know, the currency on on some ships, you know. <laughs> you trade trade things for junk food. I've done a little bit of research on like pirates and 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 stuff like that. And I found that like the way certain privateers, I guess as they would call themselves, really the captain only had power, like unquestionable power during like a storm or combat. Otherwise, everything else was relatively democratic. I don't know if this is accurate or not, but did you find that on the tall ships that you were on as well? It kind of followed those kind of more democratic rules or? Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, like even us deckhands had a say, you know, because like we, we ran the ship pretty much, you know, so like, 
by like the day-to-day operation, like the bigger picture was always the captain and first mate and, and stuff like that. So the last piece about this before, if we're going to kind of keep on this, I don't know if we're, we're following the, the entire thing here, but, uh, or the plan ahead, but one piece is, you know, obviously with the Federation being the kind of sci-fi analog to seafarers and explorers and everything it isn't the only version of that and you yourself are are Mi'kmaq and of course Mi'kmaq people are are a seafaring people as well so maybe just we could kind of round the discussion in that direction as well of of talking about you know your indigenous heritage and how that plays a part in your desire to you know obviously go out into the ocean and stuff like that and explore and and see around and stuff because Obviously, where you are is in so-called Canada, so-called Nova Scotia. Obviously, Mi'kmaq people have been there for considerably longer, traveling the seas, navigating around, and stuff like that. So is there any connection you feel in that that regard? Or, I mean, that's a loaded question. Of course you do. But what is the connection, and how do you, how do you, how do you feel that? Mi'kmaq, uh, as Mi'kmaq people, we've been seafarers, you know, forever. You know, we've traveled in canoes uh, everywhere. You know, so, like, I have that huge like deep connection with with the waters especially the waters here in the maritimes you know like our people grew up here (laughs) so like it just it feels natural you know to be a sailor um even though like none nobody in my family has ever sailed you know the closest we got we were like my family's history is like you know like we made uh mass tubes for for ships you know like the blue nose and and all those, all those uh, Grand Bank schooners. Wow! You, so you have you have relatives who worked on those those kind of ships, eh? Yeah. Wow, that's really cool. And then going further back, like, and just just for clarification, to again our our, our prairie and non ocean faring listeners, when when Bryson says canoes, he doesn't mean the size of like a canoe that we would see at Canadian Tire. Mi'kmaq canoes are pretty pretty hefty, hey? Yeah, yeah. Like ours, you know, they could be built up to thirty feet you know, and had sails and, you know, were built to cross ocean or not ocean, but, you know, like cross the um, Northumberland Strait or like even the Cabot Strait uh, here to, you know, go to Newfoundland. Yeah, that that's one thing that I think is fascinating is is there is like both in terms of oral history, but also archaeological evidence that, yeah, Mi'kmaq people traded and, and made connections with the Beatuk and other groups of people as well, which is, again, just a, a testament to their sophistication. So, I mean, obviously, they would have had a certain level of mental math, stellar cartography um, to make trips of that distance uh, successful as well, which again, super sophisticated and cool. Is there a fairly strong representation of Mi'kmaq people um, working in in kind of your your line of work or, or are you? Not really. Like um, I've only ran into a few of us, like most, mostly they're like all my relatives are fishermen. Um, so like being out in the commercial industry is not really a desired uh, aspect. And you know, like it is kind of like morally conflicting too, because the ships I'm working on right now are linked with the oil fields and the oil rigs and, you know, and stuff like that. So like, you know, the pipelines and, and, and such. So like, you know, it is, it's kind of like a, a moral dilemma, but you know, like at the same time, you can compartmentalize that, you know, cause you do have to make a living and I rather like, Personally, I rather see these oil rigs and 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 platforms working at their best optimal like efficiency and not having problems, not spilling thousands, thousands, tons of oil, you know, if they do have an emergency. So, you know, like you gotta justify it like that. I get that living and, and working in, in Alberta and I I think Barry, when you and I first met, I was actually employed by one of the big oil and gas companies, which I I, I distinctly remember you asking me like, "Oh, what do you do?" And I kind of went, uh, "Well," <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I was I was uh, I was one of the trainers and stuff, so I you know I I did the same thing, right? You compartmentalize it. You want people to be safe and you want them to be healthy and. So I saw myself as kind of fulfilling that role a bit. So I, I, I understand that kind of 
uh, trepidation and, and a little bit of uh, morally gray areas and, and navigating this modern world that we find ourselves in. Yeah. And, you know, like the, the company I work for, they they're very like pro-Indigenous and uh, they actually have a subsidiary company that is all run by Indigenous people. And they're hoping like in the next couple of years, they're going to have a, all all Indigenous crews on their boats. So like, you know, I'm happy to to like actually start doing that, you know, and helping them with that. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think the key to sustainability is in learning lessons from Indigenous cultures and societies. I think that, I don't know, I, I don't want to get like too polytrexy here, but like, obviously there's, there's mitigating circumstances. You're right. People, people have to eat. And I think about all of the things we do, we need to do what we can in the places we have, you know, and in terms of like educating people, I think that's something the three of us all share. We all, we all educate in our own ways and that's really important. And I mean, in my in my line of work as an educator, you know, I, I talk with a lot of students whose parents are also working in the oil field and stuff like that. And, and understanding that, you know, human human caused climate change is definitely something that the oil field um, and oil and gas is is culpable for in so many ways. But if we were to suddenly decide immediately tomorrow to change everything, it doesn't mean that we wouldn't be using oil and gas, we'd just be using it less commercially, less based on profit, and more geared towards sustainability. So I think in all of our three specific magisteria, this is a good spot for us to all be at. I'm really happy to hear that that this company you're working for does prioritize a certain amount of uh, Indigenous leadership and representation, because I think the more exposure that is there, I think the less we can be so hell-bent on profit and thinking more about the investments <laughs> that uh, we can make in terms of like having a planet to live on and all that stuff, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know, like, and and with, with like, um, the shipping industry too, like, you know, like, it's still one of the most less producers of carbon than any other industry, you know, and also like, we're in the midst of like, a huge revolution like with shipping like you know like where they're going back to sales they're going back to like all these amazing technologies you know like salt reactors you know hydrogen salt reactors that instead of using fuels you know like they're using hydrogen technology you know so it's 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 awesome like to be on on the cusp of a revolution you know, for, for the industry. I've seen those, uh, schematics of, of ships and I don't, uh, very out of context, very just, you know, single thing put together in a meme, but it was a, a ship with kind of these big like tubes coming up or something. And, and they said they're powered by the wind. And of course the, yeah. the meme was ships powered by the wind. Wow. It's the future. It's <laughs> like, that's pretty great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Those are, uh, uh what are they called? I think Fetner like rotor sails. Yeah. And they're pretty cool technology, but they've been around since like 1919. Wow. Like, that's pretty cool. yeah. Yeah. So they're, they're making a big comeback right now. Oh, amazing. So I, I was kind of curious just uh, in your own personal life. I, I always like to ask this of people who are Star Trek fans. Um, when did you become a Star Trek fan and, and what, what drew you to it? What's your kind of earliest memory of liking this thing called Star Trek? Oh, well, you know, I grew up in the age of uh, the next generation. Yeah. So like, I, you know, I was, I was young. You know? When did it come out? 80? 87. Yeah. 87. Yeah. I would have been six years old, you know? So I don't really remember it, but I definitely remember it from like reruns and like, you know, like I watched it live, you know, like season finale or a series finale, you know, stuff like that. So, yeah, you know, I, I'm, I'm a eighties and nineties kid. So there's a lot of parallels with, you know, like with Star Trek and like what I do in, in the real world. So like, you know, it's pretty, it's, it's pretty cool. We kind of started the conversation way back when talking about uh, indigenous representation in Star Trek and, I'm curious your perspective a little bit because uh, speaking for myself, I'm I'm Métis on my mom's side, and um, you know I, I first remember when they announced Star Trek Voyager was coming, and you know the first officer was going to be in the language of. of Hollywood at the time and still unfortunately now an Indian you know there's and all of this and I remember being so excited at the time that you know 
someone who looks like my uncles and my grandpa and stuff is, is going to be on the show. And I mean, <laughs> we can talk about where my feelings went after that character was introduced and the things they did. But uh, I'm curious your perspective, kind of seeing that in Star Trek and, and uh, I guess maybe <laughs> kind of going with what Barry's been doing this last week. Uh, do you have kind of a report card for Star Trek on their uh, indigenous representation? Oh, yes, yes, for sure. Like, I feel like I'm like yelling into the void sometimes on like on Trek Twitter because like, you know, like I'm always talking about indigenous representation in in Star Trek, you know, like how it's not been like the greatest. It's been very Hollywood stereotypical representation. So and a lot of the a lot of the context was written by non-indigenous people. So, you know, like there's a lot of wrongs that need to be righted uh, in in Star Trek. And like I'm. I'm one of those people, like, I'm so sick of, like, aliens always giving technology to Native people. You know, like, we see it in ancient aliens all the time, you know, the the guy with the meme. And the aliens are always white guys, too. (laughs) Like, let's be honest. Yeah, so, yeah, I always talk about how, like, it needs to be, like, there needs to be a new uh, character. You know, they, they have to bring in a character that's actually fleshed out and, like, from places you know because like all of all of the white characters they have these complex backstories like you know friggin Janeway hates thunderstorms because she grew up in Iowa and then you get you know Chicote where he's like yeah I grew up in the Amazon and blah 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 and I can't make fire with sticks you know and you're just like great that's the representation that I have yeah and and every time they they do something with it you hear the pan flutes come out and yeah. it's just like okay yeah. all right yeah i i think like the the most for me and i mean this is a, a big one but i think uh russell russell bates's animated series episode how sharp a serpent's tooth probably has the most strongest representation and it's minimal like i think it's a is it lieutenant uh walking bear i think was his yeah. name mm-hmm. and like that's it like it's probably the least watched bit of star trek of all it's probably the least watchable of all series as well yeah um i just i missed i missed the animated series it doesn't do much for me i i, I used to watch hercules remember you guys remember hercules in the back yeah <laughs> very similar animation style when all the monsters either went raw raw or <laughs> yeah <laughs> Again, as as like a settler, I never noticed. And yeah, by the time Voyager comes along, I was like, oh, well, there's our, our representation and just kind of like kind of odiot and dote and dade my, my way along it. And until social media, I think to some degree, I never really fully knew that there was even an issue there. And I think that's maybe Star Trek's biggest blind spot is the Federation and, you know, the way they make fun of it with the Borg is actually a colonial power and has the ability to affect indigenous communities. Right? I mean, like the prime directive, right, is is basically their their bandaid for the the the, the crimes of earthbound colonialism and stuff like that. And I don't know, I, I guess like I've got my ideas and stuff like that, but I wonder if just the way they've structured Star Trek altogether, even though they've made so many advancements in representing people, uh, especially by breaking down the myth of gender uh, and and stuff like that. Maybe from your guys' perspective, you know, if you could make an indigenous character or you could make something, an arc or something that would be able to tackle the heavy issues that Star Trek tackles, but, you know, in, 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 in more of like a way that... Um, that indigenous people face is there and not to put you on the spot but like is there anything that we could even say you know would, would be what you'd be looking for or what you would what you if you could be given the writer's task what would you want to make who would you want to make well for me like i really want to address like like how bad did earth get that all the natives had to move off world <laughs> yeah you know actually, yeah <laughs> like that's a huge like unanswered question <laughs> you know like they literally left and went to a different world and they were on that world for centuries you know so like what the heck <laughs> that's what i really want to address like why why was it so bad that 
native people needed to leave. <laughs> it's actually a, a funny. I was just talking with my wife, Nikki, today about uh, Deep Space Nine, and, and we watched it all through a few years ago, her first time. And I was like, oh, we should rewatch that again and, and start at the beginning now that you know all the characters and stuff. And I started thinking about one of my favorite scenes in the premiere episode of Deep Space Nine, where Bashir is all wide-eyed and excited and he's stalking the infirmary and he says, oh, this is where heroes are made, right here in the wilderness. This is frontier medicine. And Kira gets right in his face and says, this wilderness is my home. And... Mm -hmm. She says, you know, you can help by bringing your Federation medicine to the natives. You'll find them a friendly spiritual folk or something like that. And I, I love that scene. And it's really something that, like, I wish they played with more as Deep Space Nine went by. I mean, the station is called Deep Space Nine. <laughs> like, how <laughs> insensitive is that? <laughs> yeah. But I was like, oh, colonialism on Star Trek. Oh, my goodness. And then, yeah, they kind of didn't really do much with that after that yeah yeah the colonialism doesn't have to be addressed and like it's a double-edged sword i mean know how to describe it <laughs> but yeah I, I guess that's the big thing i really want to address and like what happened to them afterwards because like i don't know i just do that whole like you know calculation meme thing in my head because like you know at the last the last time we seen that colony they were fighting with the cardassians and then you skip over to Voyager and I forget which season they were in. I think just after they reconnected with Starfleet, you know, like they said that all Maquis like colonies were destroyed. So does that mean like the planet of Indians is destroyed? <laughs> you know, like, are they extinct? Like, <laughs> You know, that that needs to be addressed. <laughs> yeah. Also, Cisco annihilated the atmosphere of a planet because he got pissed off by Eddington. And I mean, maybe maybe some of those people were there too. Like, and did they have time to evacuate? Like <laughs> there is there is there is sometimes where the the way in which it, I mean, obviously it's stronger in the in the TOS and the earlier ones, and it's I think they're they're getting to a place where they can approach it a little bit better. I just feel like the recent like discovery, like where would they best be able to explore explore the concepts around indigeneity? I really felt like they could have almost done it with their storyline around Saru, but it never got approached. But I, I do think also like indigenous people should be the ones writing those stories ultimately when it comes time, because settlers just aren't good at it. We we, we write our own stories and sometimes they forget tons of people. But uh, <laughs> but Dan, on your end, like where where would you want to see that? You know, like we, we haven't talked at length about, you know, kind of or at least recently, you know, about about this sort of specific uh context but where where would you want to see Trek go i mean yeah just kind of uh e even just giving us a character who's just a character who has like like uh bryson was saying earlier like you were saying a fully fleshed out backstory that isn't tropey isn't tokenist and, and all that kind of stuff uh and after seeing Discovery season four, let's have Michael Gray Eyes play him. He was incredible. Like, there's no shortage of talented, amazing indigenous performers to choose from either. You know, like, uh, I think of Stamets and Culber and how they're allowed to just exist as themselves. And the fact that they're a same sex couple doesn't play into the story. Like, you could. In, in a lot of cases, scenes with them together, their gender does not matter. It's a loving couple existing. I just, I want to see that. I want to see people existing as people without having to have twee pan flute music playing and them having to go on a vision quest and do things that yeah. have very little resemblance to the real lived reality that that people live, you know? Yeah, and if I hear Kuchi Moya one more time... <sighs> <laughs> oh man i was talking with a, with a student of mine who, who's indigenous and, and has a bit more interest in star trek and we were talking about the uh what your what your warp like let's go to warp sort of you know engage in and theirs was skoden which i thought was really funny um <laughs> nice <laughs> yeah which I, I, I some of us may not have seen reservoir dogs if you haven't please do it's uh it's a delightful uh 
and also really like good. really heavy <laughs> in some cases <laughs> um a tv show that uh, doesn't have much to do with star trek but uh, i've noticed they've made uh they've made bigfoot references every episode almost and i think that's pretty cool so i was going to ask like this is again i'm just moving into the woo land here you've been on the ocean a lot have you ever seen anything weird out there i oh yeah oh tons tons of weird things you know like you know on this trip like we we had uh just like random fishing gear just go by us like that were probably jettisoned from from or like broke free from the ship you know like and it was all set you know like it was long line like uh, i'm guessing for swordfish so like it was just just floated by us like you know or like i know i remember one time like we we're sailing it through fog uh like on a tall ship i worked on and out of the fog i'm just like staring at this thing and like a life raft comes out of the fog you know and it was like discolored it was half inflated you know there's stuff growing on the bottom of it so it was out there for a long time wow yeah that's eerie yeah (laughs) so like and like obviously there was nobody in it right you know like it was yeah it was weird so we're just floating by us anomalies yeah Uh, it's it's your anomalies yeah (laughs) we've detected an anomaly off (laughs) (laughs) no tears in the the space-time continuum though eh? no no not yet (laughs) (laughs) and um and another thing is like my catchphrase which i could say on on for star trek is boosinage which means uh in Mi'kmaq that means let us take a journey together across the sea in a canoe oh i love that Speaking yeah. of sophistication, can you say mm. that again? What? Uh, Busanich? Busanich. Yeah. Wow. I love so it. So it means to, to go on a journey together across the sea in a canoe. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's even got a, it's it's got a kinetic quality, like the word itself yeah. as well. Like it, it sounds like a, a let's, let's give her, let's go. I, I love it. Yeah. That's great. Nice. Yeah. I, 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 I've been learning a little bit of Cree, my, uh my fiance is Cree and her family speaks Cree. So I've been picking up little bits and stuff. And I found that there actually is like a word for the man walked up the hill with a cane. So yeah, very sophisticated, expressive yeah. uh, kind of language. I think that's the other little piece that I was going to say is, you know, like, um, while you're out there, you know, have you, have you been learning any, have you learned any Mi'kmaq tradition around seafaring? Has any survived? Um, Cause I hate to ask that question, but colonial societies and all that, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's some, like, I have an old school, like um, Mi'kmaq dictionary, um, you know, like a paper one, and it has a lot of sailing terms in it, you know, like it, you know, like um, I don't really know what they are because like it's written in, a dialect I don't know, but I, I know the gist of the word. I just, I, it's not properly spelt for my understanding of, of the language, which is a little bit, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. There's, there's tons of sailing words in this dictionary, like, you know, port starboard, you know, helm, everything. Yeah. I've been a, a very, uh, I, I made a promise a long time ago that I would learn Cree and uh, I've, been very very slow going and and i need to just kind of do it the one thing that sticks in my mind right now and this is apropos of nothing is that tacoma means snot so i will never ever drive a toyota tacoma (laughs) (laughs) that's all i see now when i see those vehicles (laughs) and like a a hard thing for me like micmac is like it's it's so there's so much subtlety into it like just even how you you say something, it if you change like where the where the pause is, it totally changes the what you're saying. You know, like you know, like you. There's one word. It's uh, "gesalu," which means "I love you." Uh, but if you say it uh, with how do you say it? I think it's "gesalu." It means I'm going to throw you gently into a fire. <laughs> You know, so like, wow, my language is complicated because like, you know, <laughs> even the cadence of how you say things, you know, like is going to screw something up. <laughs> really? Yeah. I do love that. It's gently though. Like that's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't know how I can picture how to throw somebody gently into a fire, but yeah, it sounds pretty cool. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I get I get images of, of a very uh, a very sort of like determined but but calm, just pushing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's funny. 
Well, this has been a fantastic discussion that um, I am trying to keep to our, our time limits here, but uh, Bryson, we'd love to have you back on anytime. And uh, if you aren't following Bryson, where where Bryson can people find you to uh, live vicariously and uh, through your, your trips, learn more about uh, Mi'kmaq society and uh, get the learning? Where, where can they find you? Well, on almost all of my social medias, I'm known as Bryson the Gative. Nice. <laughs> yeah, so that's how you can find me. Bryson the Gative. And yeah. so that's a that's a portmanteau of being a gay native. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Love it. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> and I highly recommend you look for Bryson. He is a load of fun. His cats are amazing. Um it's uh it's always fun and he's always showing us pictures of McMoggy, which is always beautiful to see. Well, um where can they find you, Mr. Dan? You can find me for now on Twitter at Kurtrats, that's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S, and of course in the Positively Trek discussion group on Facebook, where uh uh if I'm not posting a lot, I'm at least lurking, so uh keeping up to date on all the discussions happening there. And of course, Positively Trek on Twitter, just at Positively Trek. You'll find us there. You can find me on Facebook just at Barry DeFord. Otherwise, I do also tend to lurk around. I did a lot more lurking recently on uh, on Positively Trek. So uh, once again, hoping to uh, do a little more there. And uh, basically, that's where you'll find me on the social medias. And once we figure out Twitter, I'll tell you where you can find me then. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And as we always say here, stay positive. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.